part three of this sermon series. We have Abner Ramos, and Abner and his wife Molly have been with us uh, for a little over a year now. Is that right? Almost a year. And just to put this into context, them speaking today, or, or Abner speaking today, is part of a, a very intentional strategy that we have. And let me, let me read from Ephesians 4 uh, to give us some context. It was Christ himself who gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the entire body may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So as we've said many times, Christ has given certain people certain gifts, and when they exercise those gifts, we all grow and eventually become mature in our knowledge of God. We attain to the full measure of Christ. So what would happen if we had a, a body where we only exercise one part of the body? Right? It would be pretty unbalanced. So in order for us to really be a fully functioning church, the, everyone has to use the gifts that God has given them. And we believe that uh, people like Abner, first of all, he's a prophet. He's been given the, this prophetic gift, right? Uh, and he, what does it mean to be a prophet? It's somebody who's able to take the truth of God, the words of God, and be able to speak them to God's people, often in a way that challenges us. And the prophets uh, in the Old Testament were often used by God to speak hard truths to people. Now, sometimes... It's difficult for, as a pastor, to be able to speak those hard truths to you, right? Because sometimes i got to keep my relationship with you, right? And so <laughs> I don't want to get you all mad at me, right? That's not to say that I don't shy away from the, uh, that, I, that I shy away from those things. I really don't. But sometimes having somebody who has the prophetic gift, they can just come and just challenge the church in a very direct way. And so it helps the church when we raise up prophets within the congregation. Abner has a gift. Uh, he and Molly are, are missionaries. Are, uh, they, they are in full-time ministry with InterVarsity. They are nationally recognized leaders. And when we merged with Roland Heights, we knew that we would need new leadership, right? Because some of our best people were going over to uh, Roland Heights. And so we needed to replenish those ranks. And we were just praying, God, we don't have time for like a, a six-month or a year-long search for like people to come join us. We need you to just drop leaders out of the sky and like do it now. And like a month later, Abner and Molly come. And, uh, and they've been amazing just kind of join us in that. Um, James, you just have come in for a few weeks, right? And we were like, we need help on the worship team. And then, boom, you show up. And he's like, I could help. And so God is just like dropping leaders on us because he loves us and because he has a purpose for us. So Abner, I just want to thank you for offering your gifts today. We, you're going to hear over in the months to come more people from our congregation come up who have that teaching gift, have that prophetic gift, have, have these gifts that God has given them. You're going to see them, share them more, and that strengthens the church. So Abner, thank you. Take it away. Thank you, brother. Uh, happy Father's Day, Trinity. Uh, or like my daughter says, happy Dada's Day. Uh, why don't we begin with the word of prayer? Do we got that slide up there? Oh Lord, our God, you have chosen to make yourself known through your creation, your word, your son, and your spirit. 
Now reveal your glory to us and through us, the church. Speak to us, form us, lead us, dwell in us. Teach us today how to love as Jesus loves, to welcome the stranger, heal the sick, and care for the poor, to bear good news, build bridges, and bring your people home. For Christ in us is the hope of glory. May your perfect will prevail in us this day. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I would like to begin this morning by sharing a story about community and what it looks like to walk together uh, when things get hard. This, this story is about walking, literally. So last year in uh, 2016, in March 2016, I began to organize this uh, hike of Half Dome in Yosemite. So for those of you who don't know, uh, and have never been to Yosemite, the Half Dome hike is one of the most beautiful hikes on the West Coast. It also happens to be one of the hardest hikes on the West Coast, probably with a difficulty level of 10, because you start at the bottom of the valley floor and you climb uh, 4,800 feet, the equivalent of 443 stories, six times the height of that U.S. bank tower in downtown L.A. And you hike 19 miles round trip burning about 10,000 calories. Now, the main issue on this hike has to do with oxygen or the lack of oxygen, right? Yosemite Valley is at about 4,000 feet, and the top of the dome is almost at 9,000 feet. So right around 7,000 feet, you begin to huff and puff for air, and you're not even at the top yet. So let me tell you a little bit about the people uh, who came with me. My brother, he's, I think, on the right-hand side, Oh, left-hand side. That's, that's my brother, uh, the bald guy. Uh, he lost about 40, 40 pounds while training to go on this hike. Uh, the guy next to him, little guy, it's my nephew, Maximus, is only 13 years old. He had never done a hike like this before. Uh, my brother's uh, friend, Josh, who is right here on this side, he lost 160 pounds in 18 months, uh, got hit by the car at the beginning of the year, broke 18 bones, and was ready to hike a few months later. My friend Eddie, who is right next to me, uh, wearing the UCLA hat, um, Eddie had never hiked like that either. And when I invited him, uh, his wife Alice said, Abner, Eddie's never going to make it to the top. He's actually really good at sitting on the couch and drinking soda. Uh, <laughs> total hater, right? Uh, my my father-in-law on the right-hand side, that's Molly's dad. He is uh, 68 years old, 69 years old now. Uh, had just beat cancer. So right before, uh, about two months before this picture was taken, he, he went through his last round of chemo. So, and then on my end, I had just gotten diagnosed with asthma, right? And I'm going on this hike that requires a lot of oxygen. Good luck. So we set out about 5 a.m., and about an hour in, my lungs start giving out. And some of you guys read this on my Facebook page. My lungs start giving out, and I'm just realizing that I'm not getting enough oxygen because I forgot to take two puffs of my inhaler. So I sit down, and, I, and Eddie sits down next to me, and I'm like, Eddie, I'm, I'm not going to make it to the top. This is just not going to happen. I, I need to walk down the mountain. And Eddie says, then I will walk down with you. He's like, Abner, to tell you the truth, 90% of the reason why I came here is because I wanted to hang out with you, and I'm not going to go to the top. And I was like, uh, I can't let you do that. If I go down, you're going up. He's like, no, I'm going, I'm going down with you. So because I didn't want to... Uh, not see Eddie reach the top, I got up and I kept going. 
Um, about an hour later, midway through the second waterfall, Jim takes a bad fall, and he sprains two of his fingers, right? His little finger was like 90 degrees that way. Uh, his ring finger was like down here somewhere. Uh, so he, will, he goes into shock. He didn't even feel it. And I go into shock because it's disgusting. And I'm thinking to myself, I have to call my, my, my wife and my mother-in-law and tell them that Jim just took a bad fall. But he popped them back in. Um, my brother administered first aid. And we gather together in a circle. And the question is, now what? You know, what are we going to do? Because the, the last 45 stories of Half Dome is the actual dome where you're like just going up, kind of like that. In fact, that line in the middle, that's people going up that look like ants. That, those are people on the cable. And, and Jim just uh, messed up his fingers. So I go, what are we going to do? Jim grabs his hiking poles, and he says, let's go. We're going to finish this. I was so inspired, 68 years old, just beat cancer. So when we get to the base of the dome, uh, everybody's huffing and puffing. I'm almost passing out. My nephew starts freaking out because at this point, the slope on, on the mountain is it's just crazy. It's like the Lord of the Rings type stuff, right? Uh, you're just going up, and he starts basically crawling up on his hands on knees, completely scared. And right when this picture was taken, that's, that's as far as he wanted to go. He saw the last hour of that climb, and he's like, I am not doing this. So we, w- we went out, up without him spent 45 minutes having lunch up at the top. And as we're coming back down, we hear somebody say, hey, guys. And it's my nephew, Maximus, who had decided to climb the dome, the cables on the dome, completely by himself. Basically overcame his fear. And on the way down, uh, he had never been on a hike before, didn't prep for this hike. Uh, his, his muscles began to hurt, and he began to slow down. And what should have been a 12-hour hike turns into a 19-hour hike. And at one point, he just he was like one step at a time. And I'm like, Maximus, this is all in your head. You need to get over it. You're putting the rest of us in danger. And something just kind of clicked in him. And we finally made it back down at 10 p.m. Now, why am I telling you this story? Our walk of faith, I want to argue, is not too different than hiking Half Dome. But our ultimate destination is the city of God as described by John in the book of Revelation, chapter 21. This means that there's going to come a day when all of us are going to see Jesus face to face. And the Christian journey is like a really long hike. And along the way, you're going to need people to motivate you. We're all going to need people to motivate us. Sometimes we're not going to want to go on, and the only thing that's going to get us to move is a friend. Sometimes you're going to take a bad fall, and what we're going to need is somebody to patch us up. And sometimes we're going to be afraid, and what we're going to need is somebody to motivate us and cheer us on. We do this in community, one step at a time. Our final destination is being with God. Now, this morning, we're going to talk about what it means for Trinity Church uh, to be the type of community where broken Christians, uh, people who are experiencing suffering sometimes, help each other walk through the fire, walk that journey of faith. What does it mean for us personally and as a family to gather in community, follow God when the hardships of life make that journey difficult? We know how it ends, but in between then and there, uh, there's just a lot of stuff that's going to happen. So we're going to be looking uh, at Jesus' interaction with Jairus and the bleeding woman in the chapter 5 of Mark's gospel. But before we, get, we begin that, I wanted to give you brief, a brief background on the story. 
Uh, at this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus' ministry is in full swing. He has gathered followers. He has been teaching. He has been healing, proclaiming the, the word, uh, the kingdom of God. Word about Jesus has spread all over the place. And in chapter 5, everybody wants to hang out with Jesus. Everybody is trying uh, to see what this guy is about. He's like a rock star. Everywhere he goes, people want to see him. People gather. So we pick it up uh, again in Mark's gospel, chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the uh, synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded with him earnestly. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Now Mark tells us that as soon as Jesus came out of the boat, the crowd gathers about him. And like I said, this is a huge crowd. And you can imagine that some of the people are there just because they want to be healed. Some of them are curious and they want to see who this guy is. And some of them are just wondering if everything that has been said about Jesus is true. Can I just touch him? Can I be around him? What is this guy about? And you can just imagine how crazy that scene must be. Everyone wanting to be around Jesus. And in the midst of this chaos, uh, a man by the name of Jairus, the synagogue leader, comes to Jesus. Synagogues were usually led by a group of elders who chose one, uh, one of the elders to lead them. This means that Jairus uh, is a man of honor, an important man in the community. And as, and as a leader of the synagogue, he is actually responsible for making sure that the entire community uh, is, is uh, remaining faithful to the Torah. And the tension in the text has to do with the fact that at this point in Mark's gospel, the Jewish leaders have not been entirely excited about Jesus' ministry. Jesus is going around healing people, casting out demons, and in chapter 2, he claims to have the ability to, be, uh, to forgive people's sins, and the religious uh, leaders just trip out, right? Because he's kind of putting himself at the same level of God, and they don't like it. And to make matters worse... Jesus, he eats with sinners and tax collectors. He's not even acting like a religious man, and they take issue with it. The Pharisees question him about fasting and the Sabbath, and they have accused him of casting out demons by the power of the devil. And I say all of this to remind us, right, that when Jairus, the synagogue leader, the guy who's responsible for the faith life of the community, approaches Jesus, we are left to wonder if maybe something is about to go down. Now, I think some of us can relate to this. Um, I went to Montebello High School, not too far away, and there would be days when you knew a fight was going to go down. You guys know what I'm talking about? Maybe you don't. (laughs) There were days when we knew somebody was going to get in a fight, and this is usually the way that it would go down, right? You go to school, and hey, such and such person said something something to me, and I'm going to go beat them down right now. Bam, and then like a crowd gathers around that person, and then they would all walk, uh, to whoever it is that the guy was going to get in a fight with. And all of a sudden, more people and more people begin uh, to gather. And then they get to the guy, and everybody gets in a big circle. You all know what I'm talking about? Any, anybody experience this? Yeah, exactly. I'm not alone. Thank you. Um, and, and there was, like, electricity in the air. You know what I mean? And at that point, you can't back down, even if you don't want to fight at that point, because everybody's gathered. It's like it's going to be a rumble. And you, and you can't let the crowd down, right? And the fight was going to happen, and for some sick reason, this, this was the highlight of most of our weeks. 
So, so Jairus, he comes to Jesus, and I imagine that there are some people in the crowd that are like sick high school students, uh, excited to see what's about to go down, right? Like the crowd that gathered to see that, that fight in high school, there's, there's just electricity in the air. But Jairus walks up to Jesus and does exactly the opposite. He falls to his feet. Falls to his feet. And can you imagine the shock? And some of the people in the crowd to have the religious leader fall at the feet of Jesus. Is that Jairus? Right? Is that our synagogue? What is he doing? This is, this is crazy. Oh, my God, he's not supposed to do that. How shameful. But Jairus is not thinking about any of that. Right? He's not here to please the crowd. He's not here to think about what's culturally appropriate or the correct religious thing to do, Jairus knows that his daughter is sick, and he has heard that Jesus can heal, so he's going to ask Jesus to heal him. Jairus is at the end of his rope. His daughter is dying, and seriously, as a dad, I can't even wrap my mind around that. That would be like my worst nightmare. But you know what I love about Jairus? That in the middle of of this desperate situation, in the middle of this moment of crisis, he falls to his knees and he pleads with Jesus. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she could be healed and live. And when crisis hits Jairus, Jairus comes to Jesus. When crisis hits Jairus' family, Jairus comes to Jesus and tells him the truth about the situation and asks the Lord to intervene because he believes that Jesus could do something about it. Now, let me uh, back up from the text a little bit and give us an opportunity, give me an opportunity to, to get real with you and ask you questions. Have you ever felt like Jairus? Have you ever experienced family crisis where you felt like everything around you was crumbling? What does that feel like? Last year when Mina was born, uh, Molly experienced a lot of complications. Some of you guys have heard the story. Uh, my wife would not stop bleeding. Uh, in the delivery room, it took them, the doctor about half an hour to get Molly to stop bleeding, and it would just not stop. And a few days later, uh, we were at home, and Molly began to bleed again in the bathroom just uncontrollably. And I had to call friends to come at 5 a.m., hand them my daughter, clean up the bathroom, take Molly to the emergency room. They stopped the bleeding. A few days later, again, early in the morning, call the ambulance. And I watched them basically take my wife away. And I'm holding my three-week-old daughter in my hands. Um, my, My bathroom looks like an episode of The Walking Dead. There's so much blood in there. And I'm praying to God that my son doesn't get up to see Molly getting strolled out uh, by the ambulance. And I'm praying that he doesn't see all the blood. And this just continued to happen. Uh, a few days later, we took her in to get a procedure done where they basically take everything out of your uterus. And what had happened with Molly is that uh, the placenta had embedded itself too much into the wall of the, of the uterus. So her body thought that Mina was still inside and kept pumping, pumping blood. Uh, and when they went out to do this procedure, Molly started bleeding out again. And the doctor came out and looked like she'd seen a ghost. She's like, we have to basically keep your wife here. And finally, what stopped the bleeding the next day, they put plastic shunts uh, in the blood vessels leading to Molly's uh, uterus to stop the bleeding permanently. And I felt like Jairus. Right? I was completely hopeless because I thought that Molly was going to die. 
And the problem is uh, that unlike Jairus, I didn't know how to bring my fear and my pain to Jesus. Because you see, ever since I became a leader in InterVarsity, most of my prayers have been directed towards ministry. Lord, what should I do in this Bible study? Lord, um, what scripture should I use in this sermon? Lord, uh, what should I do to lead this team? Give me some wisdom. And I learned early on as a Christian how to live for God. How do I move this ministry forward? What is my vision? What is my goal? What is my strategy? And you know what? God in his grace was willing to interact with me at that level. But I didn't know how to live life with God. I didn't know how to just let the Lord in and pray for the things that had nothing to do with ministry and everything to do with me. I didn't know how to say, Lord, I'm scared. I want my wife to live. I don't want my kids to grow up without a mom. And in the last 18 months, I've had to relearn how to relate with God, right? So that my prayers aren't just about ministry, but about God's love for me and my love for God. So that next time crisis hits, I'll be able to actually have an honest conversation with the Lord. And it sounds so basic. Be honest with you, it sounds really basic. But the more I share the story with people, the more I'm learning that I'm, the only, that I'm not the only one that has problems letting God into the pain that we feel. So let me ask you again, what do you do when crisis hits your family? When Jairus' daughter is at the point of death, he goes to Jesus. Right? Jairus takes his family drama to the Lord. What do we do when we experience pain? And the point that I'm trying to make is that when crisis hits, we need to come to Jesus and be honest with him about the things that, that we need. And, and, and we do this because God is a comforter. And we see this all over Scripture. Right? We see this in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy, because he turned his ear to me. I will call on him as long as I live. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Jairus teaches, uh, teaches that it's not a question of whether or not God is a comforter, right? That's obvious in, in Scripture. It's a question of whether or not we will seek God in times when we need it and seek that comfort. And do we know how to do that? Now, the second thing uh, that I think Jairus can teach us is that how to be real in the midst of our pain. It's not just that, that, that he comes to Jesus, it's that he's real, right? Going to God is just half of it. Being real and telling God exactly how you feel, um, that's a different story. He says, please, Lord, come, lay your hands. This man is desperate. This man knows how to be honest with God. What about us? Do we know how to plead with God? And what I mean by this is, do you know how, how to tell God your disappointments, your fears, your, your pain, your regrets, your bitterness, your anger? Because all those things are mixed up in us, right, when we experience family crisis, that confusion. Do we know how to bring these things to God? Or, or do we just resign ourselves to hopelessness veiled in piety? Oh, I, I guess that's the Lord's will. I guess God just wanted it that way. Now, I, I take no issue with the will of God being done, right, hopefully. <laughs> I don't take any issue with that. My issue has to do with giving up, to not talking to the Lord. And that, that you know, that's the Lord's will. Oh, well, I don't think that's faith. 
I, I think that's resigning ourselves to fate. There's more to our relationship with God than just resigning ourselves to fate. Right? There's conversation to be had. So, in the book of Jeremiah, uh, we find some of the most honest prayers in Scripture that I think get to the root of what I'm talking about. The prophet Jeremiah, for those of you who don't know, his task for 50 years, 50 years, okay, uh, his message was to tell the people of Judah that the Babylonians would come to destroy Jerusalem. The people had rejected God. They had, for the most part, killed off all the prophets, And now the time to give account for what they had done had come. And that message for 50 years got that brother in trouble. If you read the book, you know, he was thrown in the cistern. He gets slapped. He gets spit on. He gets, I mean, everything that you could possibly imagine. All because he was trying to do the will of God. So he decides, he shares with us in chapter 19, you know what? I'm just not going to say anything, right? The word of God is getting me in trouble, and I'm not going to say anything. And early on in, in this lament, he says, but, but, if, but if I don't say anything, the word of God in me just burns. Like, like, it's almost like fire in my bones. So then he has to open his mouth. And then he opens his mouth, and he gets slapped on and spit on again. And he gets tired of it. He gets tired of it. And his suffering is a result of obedience to God. But instead of shrugging it off, right? instead of saying, oh, well, he has something to say to God. Check this out. Jeremiah nineteen fourteen. Cursed be the day that I was born. And this is to God, by the way. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child has been born to you, a son. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning, a battle cry at noon. For he did not kill me in the womb. My mother as my grave, her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? Nothing fluffy about that prayer. But I want to argue that Jeremiah's honesty with God is perhaps his greatest strength. Right? His lament is powerful because it conveys like, just his realness, man. Like his ability to just bear his soul to the Lord. Jeremiah has no problem telling the Lord exactly how he feels, even if it means telling God that it would be better to not be born than having experienced everything that he has experienced for doing the will of God. His authenticity, I would, I would say, offends us. You guys feel that? Ooh, are you going to talk to God that way? It, it offends us. But I would also argue that many of us in this room have felt that way at one time or another and have maybe been unable to say it. And I would argue that this is actually not a bad place to be, right? Our honesty before the Lord opens the door to conversation with him. It's an invitation for the Lord to come through in our time of deepest need. Jairus, please, my little daughter is dying. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may live. What about us? What are those areas of suffering, suffering in our family and in our lives that we need to bring to the feet of Jesus? And how do we start praying real prayers and throw our fluffy prayers out the window? What does that look like? My brothers and sisters, when crisis hits, we need to come to Jesus and be honest with him about where we're at. Now, 
what does this have to do with being a Christian family? Because that's what we've been talking about, right? That's kind of what we're, the series is about. Let's uh, jump back into the text and find out. We're in verse 24. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman there was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she said, if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Now the crowd is focused on the interaction between Jairus and Jesus. Everyone is pressed around them and in the midst of this there's a woman in the crowd that needs healing. And I want to point out the differences between how she goes about interacting with Jesus and the way that Jairus does it. Jairus, like we said, is an important guy in town. He's the leader of the synagogue. People respect him. He's a man, and that would give him certain uh, respect in the community. When Jairus speaks, people listen. But the woman, we don't even know her name. Right? She's identified only by her infirmity. Mark identifies her as the woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. And I wonder if the fact that Mark does this has, is an indication as to how the rest of the community sees her. I wonder if the rest of them even remember her name. The fact that she has been bleeding like this for such a long time gives us a hint at what her life might look like. In the book of Leviticus, I actually don't, don't have that slide. The book, book of Leviticus uh, 15.25 says, When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period, or has, has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be clean as long as she has that discharge, just as in the days of her period. And any bed she lies on with the discharge will continue to be unclean. Anyone who she, uh, she touches will be unclean, and they must wash all their clothes and bathe in water, and they will be clean until evening. And the Jewish people, right, they had these laws uh, that focused on staying ceremonially clean. What, uh, they knew, like, what would keep you clean, what would keep you unclean. How do you move from a state of being clean to a state of being unclean and vice versa? Now, this could seem like legalism on the surface, but I just want to remind us that the purpose of, of these uh, purity laws had to do with the fact that they actually wanted to draw closer to God. Right After the exodus, God's presence comes down into the tabernacle uh, to dwell with his people. And God is now with his people like he was with Adam and Eve in the garden. The difference is that the people are not in the garden. The people are out and about in this uh, world that has been corrupted by sin. And before you you interact with the Lord, uh, they believe that you needed to cleanse yourself. Cleanse yourself so that you could be in the presence of God. Now, the woman, she approaches Jesus. She has to do it in secret because, you know, the crowd is providing cover. On a normal day, she would not do this because the entire community knows that she has been dealing with this for 12 years. And if if she's around them, she might actually contaminate them. And then all of a sudden, none of them can get closer to God. So can you imagine what it would be like to live your life this way? And I'm guessing that she's probably not married And if she is, her entire family would probably be considered unclean. Everywhere she goes, people don't want to hang out with her. The only one, the only people that pay attention to her and interact with her are probably the other people in the community that have been ostracized. Right? Lepers, the lame, the sick, the blind. There's a community within a community that no one wants to touch and interact with because everybody thinks that they're unclean. 
Now, what breaks my heart, and I think our hearts, about the purity laws is that they were meant uh, to draw people closer to God. But they were being used within the community to keep people away from each other and away from God. Now, before we cast judgment, let me call out the fact that we also do this in Christian community. Can I go there? Right, there are some of us, I would argue at Trinity, that will never feel like we're part of the church family because there is something in our lives that keeps us from meeting the mold or the standard of what it means to be a good Christian. It happens in every Christian community. Right? Maybe it's our, pra- our past or present struggles with sin. Maybe it's disappointments with people in the church or with church leadership. People have let us down, and we don't feel safe talking about it, or maybe we don't care to talk about it. Maybe, like the woman in the story, it's some physical ailment or disability that actually keeps us from fully participating in the family of God. And maybe it's because we have been betrayed by some of the people that we've loved, And we don't risk in relationships because we don't trust anybody anymore, not even Christian community. And this last one, I would argue, is what keeps me from being in community sometimes. Right? This is what prevents me from allowing other Christians into my life. And I have a hard time trusting people with good reason. Right? When I was in high school, I used to have uh, a group of friends that I was betrayed by. We used to hang out at one of our houses, and one of the guys, uh, without our knowing, developed this addiction to meth. And then he started stealing from his grandma to go buy his drugs. And when grandma found out that the money was missing, he blamed it on us. So a few months later, on New Year's Eve, the guys decided to get back at him. They, They knew that there was going to be fireworks to celebrate in East L.A., so they poured a bunch of gasoline under his car lit it on fire, and blew up his car. And nobody suspected that it was arson. Now, a few months later, one of the guys told his brother what had happened, but that brother didn't like some of the homies. Uh, so he said, well, you know, you guys did this. I'm going to take it to the cops. So then another night, the guys, and I was there, we were hanging out. The guys had a conversation that started with, should we kill both of them? Right, should we kill our friend and his brother? And I learned, I learned that day right, that I couldn't trust anybody, not even my friends. And, wh- and what this means practically is that my circle of friends is very small, even now. Right? I don't always let people in, even Christian community. I never assume the best in people. When I feel betrayed, I easily disengage emotionally from people. I don't extend myself to no new people. Why? Because they might get too close to me. Now, I have a feeling that at Trinity, I'm not the only one that has defense mechanisms like this. All of us have stories. Maybe not this extreme, right, where your friends are plotting to kill each other while you're hanging out with them. But all of us have been betrayed at one point or another or have other defense mechanisms. So we close ourselves off to community and we suffer on our own like the woman in the story. So let me, let me fill out how this played itself out last year when Molly almost died. A lot of people during those two months when Molly was in and out of the hospital helped us. My family, my friends, uh, my staff team. But I noticed right, that the one group who, was, who wasn't helping us as much were the people at, at our church in Lincoln Heights. So Molly, had been at, Molly and I had been at the church for five years. Uh, and they weren't visiting as much, right? The people that used to hang out with us more, uh, uh, 
who, who, who were coming uh, and praying for us and visiting us were actually the people from our previous church in Pasadena. And I realized after a few weeks uh, that that wasn't necessarily their bad. To this day, I don't blame them. And I've had this conversation with Pastor Chris, so I'm not talking trash. Okay? My, my, my old pastor knows exactly uh, where I'm coming from. I didn't fault them, and the reason that I didn't fault them for it was because I never, never gave them an opportunity to know me. I was there for five years, and I'll be honest with you, didn't do much. So when Molly and I started going to church in Lincoln Heights, like, we had Santiago, and like any family with young kids in this room is going to tell you, it is really hard to drive Anywhere, man, like 20 minutes, 25, 30 minutes away, it's so exhausting. So Molly and I didn't invest in community in the same way that we had done with our friends in Pasadena. My church didn't know me, and had, that had to do with the fact that I never gave them opportunity to do it. I didn't let them in. Part of that had to do with Santiago. Part of that had to do with my defense mechanism. I didn't want to expend that circle of trust. And I made a decision March of last year that I needed Christian community that lived in my neighborhood. I didn't want to go through another family crisis on my own. I didn't want to go to church without friends. So when I came to Trinity, I asked Albert and Johnny, will you give me the names of a few families that are in the stage, same stage of life that we are, that we just need to know? And I asked Johnny to keep me accountable. I told him, give me three months to get to know all these people. And if I don't know them, I need you to call me out. Right? So the first few months that I, stayed, that, that I was here, I, just, I stayed after church to get to know some of you guys. And some of you guys still get texts from me. Hey, what are you doing? What, what's going on? I want to be your friend. Right? I want to I expand my circle of trust. And I want you to know that none of this, none of this is normal for me. Right? For the last 12 years, I've been happy warming a church pew and doing my best to not get involved. Call my pastors, they'll tell you. But the consequences of that, right? The consequences of that has been loneliness and feeling like I don't have friends in church when my wife is dying. And I've decided that that's not what I want. So if it means that I have to feel weird going around, hey, what's up, my name's Abner. I've been here for a few months. I don't have any friends. <laughs> Come and hang out with me. It's because I actually believe that I need you. I need you. And at some point, I feel like uh, we have to make a decision to engage in community and be real. And what I love about Jairus is that he doesn't let his position as a synagogue leader get in the way of coming out to Jesus in front of the community. He wasn't supposed to do that. He could have saved face, right, by doing this, by approaching Jesus behind the scenes. But no, he decides to fall on his knees in front of the, way, the whole community in the same way. I think we can't allow anything to get in the way of coming to Jesus and being real not only with him but with each other about what's happening in our lives. And the point that I'm trying to make is that if we're going to be, become a Christian family that walks through the fire together here at Trinity, we, ne- we need to learn how to let our guard down and let people in. Otherwise, you're going to suffer on your own. 
And friends, there is no strength in that. I'm telling you from experience. There is no strength in that. Suffering on your own and facing life's challenges by yourself, it's horrible. And that's not what we're called to do in Christian community. So what does this mean practically, right? I'm a practical theologian. What what are we supposed to do? Well, I think some of us need to start telling people our prayer requests during the greeting time. Right? If if you're going to go through something difficult, share it and ask for prayer. That's not just a greeting time. That's a time to say, (laughs) I had a horrible week, actually. Can I let you in? Can you pray for me? Others of us might need to let go of, of identities that prevent us from reaching out and being real. Right? Oh, I'm an introvert. I'm shy. Uh, that's not how we did things in my family, you know, like tell people our problems. That's not what we did. Or that's not how we do it in my culture. And some of us need to start by getting to know people in the congregation. And I think that last point is especially true for those of us who have been at Trinity for a while. Right? If you've been at Trinity, and I put myself now in that category because I don't think I'm the new guy anymore, it means that I can't just be comfortable with my group of friends, right, with my tribe. I need to continue reaching out. So those of us uh, that have been in the community for a while, uh, what would it look like if we all just decided that at least one Sunday a month we were going to stay for half an hour and intentionally meet new people? Let's not allow our excuses, good ones or bad ones, get in the way of being real with each other. And I think that as long as we hold on to those identities or to those ways of doing family, we're never going to grow in our love for each other. So let's put our guard down and let each other in. Now, up to this point in the sermon, I've been talking a lot about what we as individuals need to do. You know, what do we need to do? We need to go to Jesus. We need to let our guard down. Uh, but I didn't want to end this morning with, without addressing uh, how the rest of the church, the rest of all of us, need to respond to that. Because that's also in the text. Verse 30. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now the woman is healed. But what I love about the story is that Jesus stops and asks, who touched touched me? What do you mean? What do you mean who touched you, right? Like, look around. A lot of people touched you. Disciples point out the obvious. You're in the middle of a crowd. People are touching you. What do you mean? But Jesus is focused. No, who touched me? And the woman is hearing this and is probably, this is probably like her worst nightmare, right? The crowd has ignored her up to this point. She's gotten what she wanted. And now Jesus stops to ask, who touched me? And everyone begins probably to look around. And I think she realizes they're probably going to notice her. Right? This is the very thing that she has been trying to avoid. She knows what they think of her. She's unclean. And now that entire crowd is going to have to go wash. But instead of running away or crawling out and hoping that nobody uh, sees her, she decides to lay out her whole story to Jesus in front of the entire community. Lord, I've been bleeding, Lord, for 12 years. 
I, this is a desperate, this hopeless situation. I've spent everything that I've had. I'm trying to get better. My money is gone. I have nothing. And things have only gotten worse, Lord. I didn't know what to do. And instead of rebuking her, instead of reminding her of what she did wrong or kicking her out of the community or telling all that crowd to go and jump in the river and bathe, Jesus has compassion on her. The Lord has compassion on her. And the first words that come out of his mouth are as shocking as Jairus begging and as scandalous as the unclean woman touching this religious man. He says, daughter. Daughter. First words out of Jesus' mouth, daughter. And she's, she's been completely hopeless. Right? Desperate like Jairus. She's at the end of her rope. But unlike Jairus, she has no status in the community. She has been an outcast for 12 years. She has been unable to, to participate in, in family life in the community for as long as she could remember her identity defined by the thing that prevents her from entering into society. We don't know her name. She is out, an outsider. And Jesus says, daughter, Daughter, in one word, Jesus reminds her of her true identity as a child of God, an Israelite, and welcomes her back into the family. And I think that Jesus says this not just for her sake, but for the sake of everybody in the crowd. Because at this point, she is just the woman with the flow of blood. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Go in peace. In peace with who? with the rest of the community. Be freed from your suffering. What suffering? She's already been healed. Right? She could have gone and it would have been cool. What suffering does she need to be freed from if she's already been healed? Freed from the suffering that comes when the family of God fails to have compassion for those in their midst who are in pain. See, Jesus is freeing her from that social stigma. Jesus is, is uh, freeing her from having to live life on her own, from having the rest of the community, the family of God, seeing her as a second-class uh, second citizen because of her issue. And in doing so, also reminds the rest of them that she is made in the image of God, that she is part of the family, and that they are part of the family also, and that this is supposed to mean something to the world. Right? It's a reminder that they were the people that were supposed to be known for their compassion. And they were supposed to lead the other families of the earth to worship God. Love of God and love of neighbor was at the root of who they were supposed to be. So let me back up from the text for, for a, little, a little bit just to talk about Trinity. Scripture challenges right, to, to let our guard down with the rest of the Christian uh, family, to let them into our pain. But if people are going to do that, let their guard down and share these uh, vulnerable things with us. The rest of us need to remember that when we come to church, we come because we want to learn to be God, part of God's family. And as Christians, this means that we, we agree that everyone is made in the image of God, that all of us are broken, and that all of us need Jesus. Let me repeat that. We are here because we want to be children of God. We are learning to be family. And this means that all of us, every single one of us in the room, we're broken, right? And if we're, good, and if we're all broken, we have no reason to cast judgment or respond with a lack of compassion when, when people share hard things. Two weeks ago, uh, when he introduced the series, Albert reminded us that Christians are supposed to be known for their love. And as the people of God, we're supposed to love uh, more than anybody else does. 
And last week, Johnny challenged us, right, to show empathy towards one another. And I'm guessing that in a crowd this big, now I haven't asked you, but I'm, I'm just guessing that some of you might have been like, dude, this is basic stuff, yo. Empathy? Why are we talking about this? Being the family? Like, why? And I would argue because basically the answer is that sometimes we forget about the basics. The basics are basic for a reason. We need to continue coming back to them because sometimes you forget. You just need to continue coming back, learning, relearning, practicing, casting vision, becoming the people of God, having empathy. We are the family of God, right? And sometimes people in our community are going to share things um, that's hard for them to share with us and hard for us to hear. And I think that might be frustrating sometimes. But I would like to remind us that church is not a museum where we come to look at beautiful paintings and portraits of all of us on the wall, right? That's not what church is. My friend Enrique says that church is like a hospital where sick people come to receive healing from the great, great physician. And he came not for the righteous, but for the sick. And the minute we stop believing that we are sick and that other people in the community are sick is the minute we run the risk of becoming a community that lacks compassion and does not know how to respond to moments of crisis. Now, Johnny and I got to know each other a few years ago when we were both part of this cohort of black and Latino men who were meeting together for a year of mentoring. And we would come together to share our dreams, our passions, our struggles. From the beginning of our friendship, Pastor Johnny and I have been real with each other about our struggles, about our dreams, about everything. And we've been meeting consistently for accountability now for over a year. Every two weeks, sometimes every week, we hang out in his office. We share about what's been happening. We confess. We ask questions. We challenge each other. We pray. And I have no problem sharing with Johnny what's, what's happening in me, the hard things and the bad things. Because I know that he's going to come with me in love. He is truthful but full of grace. He does not condemn me but always challenges me, always encourages me. And when I'm in sin, he has no problems calling me out. And do you know that Johnny and I, we've given each, uh, uh, our wives permission to call, to call the other one if we're acting like a jerk at home? Right? So if I'm acting like a fool, because I often do, Molly has permission to text Johnny. This guy is acting like a jerk. Call him up right now. He needs accountability. And what's crazy is that this year, I'll be honest with you, this has been the worst year of ministry for Molly and I. The worst. We've lost our entire team. Right? A team that took us, you know, I've been on staff for 16 years. It took us a really long time to build our team. We have three or four unstaffed campuses next year. I have student leaders crying at, at our leadership meetings asking me, why did my staff leave me? And I, and I felt, went to sleep two weeks ago feeling like a complete loser. Cried myself to sleep. That's my wife. Weeping. Having Jeremiah prayers with the Lord. Lord, why? Why, Lord? I'm so angry at you. But you know what's been cool? That in the middle of all of this, I have had Johnny and Trinity. And I am not alone. I am not by myself. And this community, to be honest with you, is the best thing that has happened to us in the last 12 months. Just giving ourselves. Having friends who can say, bro. 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 
empathy, letting my guard down, community, love. So when you come to church and someone shares something painful or shameful or depressing, don't be surprised. Right? Be excited that we have a family to walk with. That's actually a good thing. The world is a broken place. And this means that in this community, there would be broken people just like uh, in our lives who need a doctor. And don't be surprised either if the person sitting next to you lets you down. Right? Look at each other. Look around the room. The person next to you is going to let you down. Right? Don't be surprised if they don't live up to whatever painting or portrait you have of them in your mind. You should expect them to let you down. And I don't say that because I have a pessimistic view of people, right? But I think that scripture, my experience, and your experience tells us that we are all broken individuals. Every single one of us. So we need to change our perspective of what church is. This is not a perfect place for perfect people. This is a hospital emergency room where all of us, all of us needs heart surgery. And I don't know if if you have been to a hospital emergency room lately, but most of the people know they're sick when they're in the emergency room. And they have compassion on the broken person next to them who is just in need as a doctor as they are, right? Like nobody in the emergency room says, I don't got no compassion, I need to get out of here, you know. All of them there are there for a reason. And I would argue that the only thing we have going for ourselves that's good is the fact that Jesus heals, Jesus saves, and Jesus resurrects. And I love that both the bleeding woman get to see that. Jesus goes uh, with Jairus and resurrects her daughter. And as long as we continue letting him into our pain and being honest with him and letting our guard down and sharing our problems and remembering that we're all here as broken children of God, we will have no problems walking through the fire together. And like I said at the beginning, our destination ultimately is the city of God. We will see Jesus face to face. But before we get there, we're going to go on this journey together. Right? And some of us are going to be new to this journey. We've never trained for it before. Some of us um, are going to be broken in 18 places in our body. Some of us are going to be overcoming cancer and everything else that happens in life. Some of us are not going to be able to breathe. And sometimes, like I said, you're not going to want to go on on this journey And the only thing that's going to get you moving is a friend. Sometimes you're going to take a bad fall and you're going to need a friend, somebody in the family to to patch you up and get you back on the road. And sometimes you're going to be afraid and you're going to need somebody to motivate you, to say you could do it. And we do this in community, one step at a time, together, because we're family. Amen? Amen. Let me... uh, Invite the worship team back up. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do just one, one initial prayer right here. I'm, I'm going to have uh, the worship team play. And then I'm going to come back up and, and lead us more in, into prayer. And at that point, in the next two or three minutes here, the, the service is officially over. But if you feel like God is stirring something in you, please stay and dwell with the family of God. And let's, let's pray for each other and with each other. So, Lord, I just thank you, Lord, that, God, that you see us, God. I thank you that you give us the, the permission, the opportunity to be real with each other, Lord, to, to let down our armor, to take off our masks, 
to let you in, to be honest with you. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we get to be honest with you, Lord. Thank you that that you don't get offended by the crazy things that come out of our mouth. Lord, you want us to be honest, Lord God. And I pray that you would teach us as a community how to go there with you and with each other. Lord, would, would you help us remember that all of us here are broken, and that we want to be your children, that you love us, and that you're trying to teach us how to love each other. So I, I want to uh, have you dwell on something as, as we sing this next song. Um, I, I want to give us an opportunity to respond in a minute. And I, I want you to think, um, what spoke to you? Uh, what, what was the Lord doing in you? What was the Lord saying to you? Do you feel like, like you just need to learn how to be honest with Jesus? Right? Is that what you need to grow in? Do you need to make a commitment today that you're going to learn how to lament and, and how to bring those hard things to God? Or are you a person who already knows how to do that, but, but you don't know how to let your guard down, right? Like, like uh, you have defense mechanisms, like I had them. And maybe you need to learn how to, how to put that on hold for a bit to let people in. So what do you need to commit to? And I want you to dwell on that, reflect on that as the worship team leads us 